My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. Soledad, California. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tell Link. There's like one or two more guys in line now, so it might be like a little, you might have to wait a little bit. Right, no worries. Is there anything else you want to share about committing your life crime? Yeah, I mean, definitely after 13 years. So it was a little over 13 years ago that uh, you committed murder and attempted murder, right? Yeah. And thinking about how everything conspired, um, back then, I was so calloused, so desensitized. And I talked about how I normalized the gang culture, horrifying it, and understanding the person I am today, how much I've grown and matured, and thinking about it is, is so disgusting. And I know that's something that I can never undo. And I understand that I'm still paying, paying it for my life because of what I've done. And the Wang family, the Yao family, they have to completely rebuild their lives. And I understand we all go through painful experiences uh, in my life, but that's something they have to deal with it for the rest of their life. They have to deal with it, not me. I'm, I might be carrying the burden. But it's real for them every day when they wake up just to find strength in the morning to get up. And I can't even come close to understanding or imagine the level of pain and trauma that they had to go through. But one thing I do understand is there's no excuse for what I've done. There's no justification for it. And when I do see shows like Dateline or hear about parents uh, or their, their children been being murdered or taken away, dying too soon. I see the pain on those mothers, on those fathers' faces, and every part of their being, their soul, is excruciating. And I've done that. I've did that to somebody's, somebody's mom, somebody's dad, somebody's sister. And I truly am sorry. You know, when I think about that, and everything that I've done uh, stems from understanding my remorse. That's where my change comes from. And every day I, I choose to be better. Every day when I am mad or frustrated, I think about why I'm mad or frustrated. And every day, I know it may sound cliche, but every day I, I truly do live to honor, honor them. Not just them, but my family as well, because I've put them through so much. And it's doing things right, doing things with integrity, doing things full of compassion, um, full of forgiveness. Because I used to hold on to so much hatred and bitterness and resentment. But I've learned to let that go. And I truly am sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry from the depths of my soul. And I wish I could take their pain away. I wish I could take it all on my shoulders. I can't. 
and I don't know what else to say except that I have changed for the better. I've recognized all my issues going up. I've identified them, and and, and I'm truly ashamed. But I use my shame to tell my story so I could empower other people, other kids in my situation, that they don't have to be in the game. They don't have to act hard or glorify this type of lifestyle. They don't have to do none of that. And I wish somebody like me, back when I was that age, would just listen and ask for help. And all you have to do is communicate how you're feeling, how much you're hurting. And there's so many people that's willing to help them. And ultimately, yes, I do want to say I'm sorry. I'm truly sorry for everything that I've done. So many people, communities, families that I've devastated. So the whole time, lots of juries and deliberation, I was in a different holding tank than my co-defendant because he was already 18, he was an adult. But we're communicating through the walls uh, in Pomona Court, and he's singing songs. He's thinking we're going to beat our case because it was based on circumstantial evidence. My best friend, one of the older guys, made a statement against the both of us. So they're both gang members, and we're thinking they're not credible. These are what the lawyers are telling us. So even in my mind, no way I'm going to go to prison for life. So after three days of deliberation, we go out. And I didn't think they could find us guilty for murder over a hearsay statement from our friends. Even though you knew you were guilty? Even though I knew I was guilty. Just based on what I saw in the movies or... I just felt like they needed more evidence. Right, because there's no, there were no witnesses. Did they ever find the gun? Nothing. It was based on my friend. He got locked up for a different crime, and he told the detectives I have information about a shooting, and he gave up our names, and that's how the whole case got rolling. So and This was a guy from the same gang as you? Yeah, one of the older guys. So that was going through my mind. We're going to beat our case. Uh, I'm going to go home. And as soon as the judge read the verdict guilty, uh, my, my body shut down. Uh, I just heard nothing but a ring in my ear. And I heard my mom gasp in the background. And after that, I didn't hear nothing. It's almost as if my body just shut down. And I didn't even know what I was charged with after that and sentenced to. All I knew was guilty, guilty, guilty. And after the sentencing, the reading of the verdict, uh, I got up, I looked back, and my parents just stared back in disbelief. And I remember my co-defendant's father, he motioned, be strong, be strong. And me and Daniel, we were uh, escorted back to our holding cells. And for me, that's when I broke down. 
And I was only thinking about myself at that time, and I, I believed my life was over. And I, I couldn't believe this, that my life was over at the age of 17. And when I saw Daniel again for the last time, I told him, I'm done. I'm done with this game. This is BS. This is fake. I'm done. And he, he motioned back, I'll write to you. And that's when I, was, I knew I was done with this gang stuff. The day I got convicted, October 18, 2007, that's when I decided to change my life. And when I got back to my holding cell in California Youth Authority, I broke down and, and I cried. I cried until I couldn't cry no more for three hours, constantly begging God, bargaining with God. If you comfort me, if you give me peace, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And selfishly, I prayed that. And I did think about the impact of what I've done, especially when I saw Calvin Yao speak with a slur in the courtroom. I knew I've done something horrible. I've messed up. I've messed him up. But I couldn't truly understand the trauma that their family was going through. It was still shallow. But that was the beginning of my commitment to change. And ever since I prayed that prayer to God, I felt like He answered my prayer because I felt a sense of peace just wash over me. And, and that's when I knew. I, I told God in my heart, I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life. And that was over 12 years ago. And what about Daniel? What was Daniel sentenced to? Daniel was sentenced to 72 years to life. So 10 years less than me because he was the driver. And they charged him with second degree. For me, like that was my turning point, changing my life forward to God. For Daniel, he went the opposite direction. And he was a pastor's kid. His dad was a pastor. But for him, uh, he was mad. He was mad at God for a really long time. And it took him a long time to finally come back. Justin, what about your parents? At that point, when they're in court, do they still believe that you're innocent? Yeah, they did. They they knew somebody in my gang did it, but they didn't know who. And it was just, uh, I was saying, it was somebody else. It wasn't me. And that was the story that they went on for. And there was a lot of shame and disgrace, especially me being the only child. And there was a lot of high expectations put on me and my dad being the oldest in his family. So my family in Korea, they don't even know that I'm still incarcerated. But my dad, he dealt with the problem by drinking constantly, smoking constantly, and eventually his business took a toll and it, it shut down. And, and my mom being the strong one, a woman of faith, she was the one working hard, making all ends meet. Uh, to hold the family together. At what point did you tell your parents the truth, if you have? It wasn't until 10 years later, or I would say nine years later. 
when I got to Soledad Prison, that's when they had the, the victim awareness events where parents of murdered children would come in and tell their stories. Right. And this was around 2015. I had just gone here. And hearing their stories, it, it made me really understand even deeper uh, what they were going through. And it felt like I did something to those parents giving the testimony. And I did that to another parent. And when I came to understand that, I began to explain to my mom, my dad, that I do deserve to be in prison. This is what I've actually done. And even when they came visit, we had many, multiple conversations around that. And they began to empathize for the other families as well. That must have weighed on you, you know, holding that in. You go to this victims awareness workshop where you have mothers of murdered children sharing their story. Um, you shared that you were impacted in a way. So what was it like? You know, you, made, you must have made a decision that when they come visit you, I'm going to tell them. So what was that like building up to having that conversation with them in the visiting room? And how did you approach yeah. it? And what was their initial response? Yeah, so we we do our usual hugs. We sit down, we pray, uh, we get a few beverages, stuff to eat. And I wanted to get straight to the point because that event, it really impacted me in such a way that it made me look deeper into myself, and it was to the point where I felt so bad. I felt so bad that I had no appetite to eat for weeks. I, I could hardly sleep, and I kept thinking about the Huang and the Yao family. So I wanted to let them know right away. So after the hugs and the prayers, uh, it was my mom. Um it was only my mom that was there. Uh, my dad, at that time, he had already been diagnosed with cancer, so he wasn't able to visit me. So when I told, told my mom, um, it was very somber. Um, and, I, and I told her, at least that you can come visit me. We have that privilege, we have that luxury. But their family doesn't have Eric anymore. And and I saw a, a, an intent look on my mom's face, and, and I could see that she saw her son growing up and finally understanding and maturing. But at the same time, I knew it hurt her a lot to see me uh, still being incarcerated, and obviously she wanted her son back. Right. But I had to reassure her, this is what I've done, and I have to pay for this. This is just, this is what I deserve. And I tell her that at least I have the opportunity to grow, to mature, to help change people. And that's my calling, my purpose is to help change people. Tell my story, encourage people, inspire people through, whether it's through poetry or guitar, helping in, in the self-help groups, whatever it is. And that's my calling here. And. As painful as it was for her, uh, I think she finally understood and had a sense of closure since that point on. Was it one of those cases where she already knew but didn't want to face it? She knew in her gut that it was you but didn't want to face it, or you were innocent? 
Uh, I think she knew. She knew yeah. because there were times when I did kind of hint at her, you know, this, this is the type of stuff we were involved in, but I didn't, I haven't told her in detail. It wasn't until 2015, uh, towards 2016, that I finally told her in detail, this is what I've done. This is who I am. This is who I was. Right. And so she finally understood. And, and she constantly blames herself. She felt like it was her fault for not being there. But I had to even just reassure her. I knew what I was doing. I knew what I wanted because she gave me so much help. She hired after-school tutors for me, uh, sent me to those uh, programs, summer school. But I was committed. This is who I wanted to be, and nobody could tell me otherwise. I wanted to be a gang member, and I had to reassure I knew what I was doing. It was never your fault. And I think she still struggles with that. Because every right. time I tell her I'm sorry, she starts saying, no, I'm sorry, and, and she starts crying. Right. So I learned not to say that anymore, not to apologize, but to reassure that I knew what I was doing, and this is who I want to be. This is the, the reputation that I want to build up. All this time, I was building up an image for myself, what a gangster should be like, the reputation that I was supposed to build. And that these guys were my family. I could do anything with them, and everything would go to the grave with them. I believe that. The moment I found out, one of the older guys that I looked up, he made a statement against me. And my best friend, he made a statement against me too. And I realized that these guys really aren't that powerful at all. And everything that I thought gang was supposed to instill fear, power, and control, it was the other way around. Now I was being incarcerated. These sheriffs have more power over these gangs. And I realized then that gangs are just nobody. They're, they're nothing. People who truly are powerful are the ones making decisions. The, the officers, the courts, the judges, and they've been doing it the right way. So that's when I realized this whole gang stuff is, is a facade. Everything I glamorize to be is false. It's, it's not real. It's only in the movies. True transformation for me is I knew that gangs was wrong. I knew that violence was wrong. And I didn't know how to navigate through the prison system, coming in at a young age, starting off in Pelican Bay. I didn't know any of this, but I knew those things were wrong. And I know that we all grew up with a sense of morality. And I knew that change started from within, meaning I have to let go of the gangs and I have to maintain my sobriety. So even at an early age, I knew that I had addiction to alcohol and marijuana. And that's something I had to let go. That's something that associated with my gang lifestyle. So those two things I understood, gangs, substance abuse, and violence was wrong. And, and it wasn't easy in the beginning because a lot of people justify certain behaviors in, in prison, like what's wrong with uh, drinking, what's wrong with using cell phones. And many people justified it. But if I'm truly changed, 
I knew that I had to do everything I can to stay out of trouble because if I still did get in trouble, I was showing that uh, I was still rebellious. So that's something, one thing that I understood at a young age. So taking full responsibility, it doesn't mean that I take responsibility, I did this. That's not what that means. It means understanding who you were, understanding what led up to this point of your life crime, understanding what your issues were and and what your hurts were. And that's okay because a lot of us, we deal with things in a different way. And I was hurt. I felt neglected. But taking responsibility is identifying those things, addressing those things today. Yeah, we all feel hurt today, but that doesn't give you an excuse to be rebellious. You talk about it. You be vulnerable about it. That's how you gain a sense of empowerment. So taking responsibility means understanding who you were back then and addressing it and how you deal with it today. So when you have a clear picture of who you were, admitting it, not minimizing or denying anything that went on, yeah, this is how my parents were. This is how I experienced it. It wasn't true, but this is what went through my mind at that time. But really seeing things objectively, and my parents did love me. They did everything for me. But I told myself a lie all this time that they didn't love me, that they were too busy for me, and I got my emotional fulfillment elsewhere. And taking responsibility is also knowing and understanding the impact of your crime. So it's beyond me. It's beyond thinking about me. It's all about those families that I've hurt. So when you truly understand that and understand how sorry you are, to understand that you don't want to get in trouble again and you want to help people, that's what taking full responsibility means. Thank you, Justin. And it sounds like you've done that. For me, um, I've known guys that have been in 20, 30, 40 years, and it doesn't seem like they have the level of insight that you do about or remorse and responsibility, and that's not to, to puff you up or anything like that. It just shows that you've taken the time to be serious about your transformation and about really thinking about what you did and what you caused because it's horrific. And a lot of guys want to still blame people. It's not about blaming other people. It's not about, you know, uh, one of our friends, Ted Gray, he, he gives an analogy of looking out the window or looking in the mirror. Yeah. And when it comes to blame and responsibility, when you blame, you look out the window and you put it on everybody else. Oh, my childhood, my environment, my parents. But when a person comes to a point of responsibility, they start looking in the mirror. And they start owning what they did and what they caused. And I like what you said a minute ago that you told yourself a lie and you, and you started believing it. And, um, and there were payoffs for that. You know, you got, you got to be rebellious and gang bang and feel justified while at the same time, it wasn't even the truth. So looking back, your parents couldn't work hard and also be there for you eight hours a day either. So. They're learning along the way. They didn't, they weren't given a manual on how to raise a son perfectly. No one is. So you talked about being in prison now, uh, incarcerated anyways for 13 years. At what age did you enter the adult prison system? Did you ever go to YA? Yeah, I started off in Fillmore Juvenile Hall when I was 16. 
And as soon as I turned 17, they sent me to the California Youth Authority in Norwalk. And as soon as I turned 18 years old, I was sent off to Pelican Bay State Prison. 18 years old, going to Pelican Bay, one of the most violent and murderous prisons in all of California. Were you um, sent there to a level four yard? Yeah, that was a level four 180 design. Oh, my God. An 18-year-old there, man. I can't imagine what that was like. Um, you know, uh, that leads me to, you know, uh, okay, well, would you like sharing about a little bit about what Pelican Bay was like, I mean, back then? Yeah, I mean, definitely I didn't know what to expect. Only time I heard about Pelican Bay was in the movies and rap songs. And I remember in training day, Denzel Washington talking about the Pelican Bay shoe. So I didn't know what to expect. So when I was told that I was going way up north to Oregon and I had to break that down to my family and even then my mom broke down crying, why? Why Why are they sending me so far away? And I had no answer. And when I went to the yard, I didn't know what to expect except what I saw in the movies. So I took off my shirt to show off my tattoos and to go associate with the, the Asian guys. And, and they told me what was going on in the yard. This is the issues that we have. So it's best if you stay around us. And okay, I don't know. But as I started to go to church, other men, older men started taking me under their wings and told me, you know, this is prison, but you can't walk a fine line. You can't turn the other cheek. You can't stay away from violence. And I saw that, not just with words, when, when one guy, uh, I remember Mike Anthony, uh, people would step up to him and push up on him, but he would always respond gently, respectfully. That's when I knew, even in prison, that you could really be humble, you could turn the other cheek. And, and there were times when guys saw me go to church all the time, going to school, education, and they asked me, who do you run with? What are you, a homie or what? And I didn't know what that meant at that time. I thought, you know, we were all Asians. We hang out together. We live together. We eat together. I thought that was what it was. And there are certain things they wanted me to do, pass certain things. And I told them, no, you know, I don't want to do those things anymore. I'm serious about my change. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Like, you know where you're at? And they told me, look, if, if we ever catch you doing something, you know what time it is. And so that made me sure that I didn't want to get in trouble. Uh, I didn't want to drink when people were drinking all the time. I didn't want to smoke. So even though there was a lot of fear in that, it kept me accountable. And that's when I established myself that I'm not with the gangs anymore. I'm not with the politics. And they looked at me funny. They looked at me. They they ostracized me. And I felt shame. I felt humiliated. I wanted to belong. I wanted to you know, have fun with the guys and laugh. But I thought about my family more because they drove 15 hours to come see me twice a year. And and that's when I really began to understand my, my family are suffering and they, they really truly do love me. And that's when my transformation began. And I had to step away from the gang, the violence. And that's when, for me, they didn't have no groups, no self-help groups, but the Bible for me was a sense of guidance and I was able to navigate through 
the high level forms with God. It wasn't easy. Uh, there was a great sense of loneliness that I felt. A lot of the same feelings I had going up. And I wanted to fit in. I wanted to hang out with the guys. They were getting tattoos. But my family, to me, they were more important. I didn't want to fail them anymore. I didn't want to get in trouble anymore. I didn't want to dishonor the Wang and the Yao family. And just thinking about that, I, I live every day to be a better man. And I didn't want to be remembered as the same kid, as the same gang member that came in, same murder. That's not me. I don't want to be remembered as that. I'm better than that. My parents raised me to be better. And, and I do know that I have value and worth today. Earlier, you talked about when you shared the truth with your mom coming to visit, it was just your mom, and your dad had gotten cancer. Yeah. yeah. Would you would you be willing to share that story? Yeah, man. That's definitely one of the toughest experiences I've had. And I was 25 years old at that time. And as usual, my, my parents, they visit me around my birthday every year. And it was around December 16th. And I, When's your I immediately noticed December 21st. Okay. And, <laughs> and I noticed something was wrong because my dad, he took a bite of his pizza and he couldn't finish it. And maybe he had a stomach ache. So I, I knew something was wrong. And, and my mom, she seemed antsy, anxious. She looked at my dad and... And she said, should we tell him right now? And my mom scooted in closer next to me. And, and she told me, your dad has cancer. And my, my stomach dropped. And I, I expected it. He drank a lot. He smoked a lot. And she told me that it, it started in his throat and it spread to his lungs, down to his stomach. And I asked my mom, how long? And the doctor told us he has about a year and a half. And the next few months, it was definitely hard. Uh, every chance that I had, I, I went out to call my dad. And he wasn't able to talk that much. He could only utter certain words or certain noises. And, and for the first time in my life, I finally told him, I love you, Dad. And, and I knew he wanted to be that, but he couldn't time. The cancer has spread to his throat. And I was expecting at least a year. Uh, but the, the radiation treatment, the chemotherapy, it was, it was too harsh on him. And four months later, uh, he passed away. And yeah, it was, it was painful. Um, a lot of things were going through my mind. And, and I remember that particular day, uh, April 10th, 2016, one of the Asian guys had they told me to come out to the yard. You know, there's something that's going on that he wants to discuss with the other guys. But I told him, look, you know, you're calling me up for something that doesn't involve me. I'm going to go to church. And I went to church, and, you know, that upset him. And he, he was disrespectful about it. But I went to church. And as usual, I'm in the praise team, and, and I was singing, singing the last song uh, at 1023. That's when our worship service or worship songs are over. 
And after our service, I, I went out to the yard, called my mom. It was around one o'clock. And she asked me, did you hear? Did you hear what happened? Uh, I, no, I don't know. And your dad passed away. Passed away this morning at 1024. And, and I knew that's exactly where I was supposed to be, singing in the praise team. Mm. And I felt like I, I sang... I sing my dad home. That's right. And, and and my mom told me before my dad passed away that he saw an angel just standing in the room. And, and that's when I knew that my dad was going home to heaven. And all this time he was angry, he was bitter at God. But slowly he, he began going to church uh, prior to his uh, cancer, and I believe he accepted the Lord Jesus into his heart, and I believe he's home in heaven. And that was by far one of the, the greatest things I've experienced in here. And 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 I've wrote out my feelings through songs and poetry, and that also reminded me I had some time to prepare for my dad's passing. But what about the Huang and the Yao family? They never expected that. So it puts so much things into perspective. And I know it's, it's very unfortunate, but this this helped me realize even in death what, what they're going through and what they're still going through. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.